0: Welcome, everybody, to Between the Lines, a podcast produced by the Louis Jacobs Foundation and committed to Rabbi Jacobs' belief that the quest for Torah is itself Torah. I'm Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct that week's parshah, exploring new paths on the quest for Torah. And it's wonderful as we continue our quest through the book of Shemot to be welcomed once again by Rabbi Danny Nevins, a great fan of Between the Lines and uh, it's wonderful to have him back. I think you were with us last year towards the end of Bereshit, if I recall. Rabbi Nevins is dedicated to exploring the sacred realm of Torah and its intersection with contemporary ethics, culture and technology. Ordained at JTS, Rabbi Nevins was named Head of School of Golda Oak Academy in 2021, dedicating himself to support the faculty and students in the creation of an outstanding and warm Jewish learning environment there. And previously, in fact, worked at JTS as the Paul Resnick Dean of the Division of Religious Leadership. He also, of course, writes responsa on topics of contemporary halacha, essays, prayers, and Torah commentaries. And many of those can be viewed on his website too. And also to share that he is author of forthcoming, very much looking forward to this Torah and Technology, Circuits, Cells, and the Sacred Path. So very much looking forward to that, I think, in the spring. So as we explore Basharach, maybe to begin, Rabbi Nevins, how do you really see looking at Suf as a mirror image of Mitzrayim? And what is its significance, really, in the narrative of the Exodus?
1: Thank you, Simon. It's wonderful to be back here between the lines. And I really am a fan of all the wonderful Torah that's coming out from around the world through your uh, podcast. Many years ago, when I was a young Man, like during a gap year between high school and college, I studied in yeshiva in Israel, yeshiva tamiftar or Bravenders. And at the end of that year, a friend of mine and I went down to Egypt. We took a bus down to Cairo. And after checking out the pyramids and all that, we got on an airplane and we flew south to Upper Egypt, to Luxor and that area to see the great temples of Karnak and Luxor Temple and the Valley of the Kings and all those Mark- remarkable wonders. And as we flew over the land of Egypt, I got a, a bird's eye view of this country that I'd heard about my whole life. And I saw that it was mostly desert. It was a great, vast expanse of desert with the exception of a green swiggling stripe right down the middle of it. And as I looked down, I thought, oh my God, that's what Mitzrayim means. At least in our Hebrew-based understanding, it's a, a land of narrowness, a land of constriction and that's because life is clustered around the banks of the nile and uh, not the water alone but the area to the east and the west of it there's irrigation but it ends and so if you look at egypt from the sky what it looks like is a long green line that then when it gets to the northern part when it gets to the mediterranean spreads out into a triangle the delta And to my mind, it looked just like a snake, like a green snake, a cobra. And and of course, the snake is an important symbol of the royal family in ancient Egypt. It's a sign of peril, but also of healing, a paradoxical image, which is as well in the Torah, where the snake is, of course, frightening and, and a threat in the beginning of Genesis but is also used in that incident of the Saraf as a sort of a magical symbol of healing, which leads us to the modern image of the snake on the staff. You've got this image of the snake, which is a, you could say, a verdant, a verdant stripe in a desert. So it's a bekiat mi bar. It's a dividing of the wilderness of the desert with this lush, elongated oasis of the Nile. And so then I thought, in a way, when B'nai Israel travel out of Egypt and they reach the water and they're stuck there, and they start to cry and scream. And God says to, to Moses, why are you gonna, why are you yelling at me? And he says, raise your stick up, hold it over the water, and split the water. And remember, this staff of Moses is a staff that, when he first had it, turned into a snake in his hand. So there's like a connection between the snake of the Nile and the snake that's a staff in Moses' hand. And then the splitting of the sea, which is like this birth canal, but it's like an inversion. If Egypt is a dry land with a wet middle, then the Yam Suf becomes a wet expanse with a dry middle, a mirror image. And it's it, it seems to me that there's so much symbolism that's hidden in this parsha that what's going on here is that Yitziat Mitzrayim, the leaving of Egypt, is as the rabbis like to say, Mishia Bud LeGuulah, from oppression to redemption. There's a physical inversion that happens, and that allows the uh, political shift and eventually the spiritual shift from slavery to freedom to occur.
0: We went from geography through politics, through symbolism, history, and much else besides. But thank you for sharing also your biography and that formative trip to Egypt. It's interesting that really the impact of the splitting of the sea really doesn't last long. And what follows, of course, is a series of complaints. Are we going to die here? What are we going to eat or drink? Why did we leave Egypt? I wonder what you make of the fact, really, that the impact is so short-lived.
1: When you look at this portion as a whole, you've got the prose version of the Exodus in 14, and then the poetry version in 15, and then the rest of it is mostly complaining about food and water. And and yes, you could say it's short-lived. They were singing, they were rejoicing, but it then says the people went three days and didn't find water. And you try not drinking water for three days. Whatever great experience you had is going to be forgotten as your body shifts into survival mode. And, And any of us who have driven on a car journey with children who are thirsty or ourselves have to use the restroom, We know that those physical discomforts quickly rise to top of mind. Of course, the rabbis made this into an allegory. They walked three days and didn't find water, meaning that they had no spiritual instruction because Torah is water. And this is the reason, supposedly, why the rabbis instituted the reading of Torah three times a week, twice on Shabbat and on Mondays and Thursdays, so the people would never go three days without the water of Torah. Uh, Back to B'nai Yisrael and and the text itself, what you've got here is that the people have been slaves, and slaves in general have no freedom, but they also have no responsibility. And so whatever they were eating and drinking was being given to them by Egypt. Now, all of a sudden, they're out on their own, and there's this brief period before the manna begins when, when they have to scramble and find things for themselves. And this is obviously going to be very distressful. And they get to the point that they complain so bitterly that they say, we wish we could be back in Egypt where we could eat lasova, We could eat until our fill. And they start fantasizing about the foods of Egypt. And we can view them critically and say, see, this is how immature they are, how unworthy they are, or perhaps more charitably, how crushed and defeated they are by the experience of enslavement for all these for all their lives. But I think we can also say that they are quickly learning how to fend for themselves and also realizing how ill-equipped they are to survive in the desert without help. And this is really, I think, one of the great themes. And so that begins with our being, our emancipation and our survival of the sea journey. But it now picks up and takes a new form as B'nai Yisrael are desperately seeking to survive in the desert. And I suppose, as you've
0: perhaps hinted at, what lies behind these questions are perhaps the greatest questions of the entire Torah, which is really what follows freedom. How do we survive now that we are free? And I think there are the two responses that that we encounter, the covenantal and the cultic. Maybe could you perhaps outline what we mean by the covenantal?
1: Sure. This idea came to me from one of my teachers at JTS, a great Bible scholar named Stephen Geller, who published an article in a journal called Interpretation, in which he noted that Here in the the manna narrative, which you have mostly in chapter 16 of Exodus, you really have a blending of two different motifs, and the covenantal and the cultic. So by covenantal, he means it's the motif is that who's your daddy, basically? B'nai Yisrael are being tested to show their fealty to God. They were Pharaoh's slaves. Now they're God's slaves. They, they have had a dramatic shift, and are they going to be obedient? And their obedience is tested, and, and in this way, it's somewhat like, I hate to say this, but it's a, almost like obedience testing with, with a dog. I don't have a dog, to be honest. I've, I understand that there are many practices one has to teach the dog to obey the, the person. And so in this case, God says, you know what? We're going to do this thing. I'm going to feed you every day exactly how much you need. Take the amount of portions that your family needs. If you take more, it's going to disappear, and you're only going to have what you were supposed to have. If you take too little, it's going to be filled in because I'm in control of your nutrition. Don't hoard it overnight. There'll be more tomorrow. People hoard it overnight. It turns to worms and it's disgusting. Then don't pick it up on Saturdays. I'm going to give you a double portion that won't get wormy on Fridays, and then don't go out on Saturdays. And each time the people, um, some of them anyway, disrespect or disregard these instructions, and God gets angry and Moses gets angry because the point of this is obedience training. And in that perspective, when B'nai Israel spent 40 years in the desert eating manna, it's to teach them that God is their master. And that is a very important concept of Judaism and, frankly, of, of being a civilized person, that there are limits that have to be followed. However, it's not the most dignified approach. And um, Geller points out that there's this other piece to it in which the collection of manna is actually a, an act that draws the children of Israel into relationship with God. It's not just one of obedience, but it's actually of imitation, because God works, as it were, in providing food every day, and B'nai Israel work by collecting the manna every day. And God rests on Shabbat, and B'nai Israel rest on Shabbat. And in this way, the people of Israel are actually imitating the behavior of God. It's not so much obeying God as becoming God-like. The double portion of manna in this telling— is actually a reference back to the description in the beginning of Genesis, which is associated with the priestly tradition, of that God saw all that God had done, and it was tov ma'od, it was extra good. And so this idea that you have this double portion of manna being an extra good day of hunting and gathering that leads into the Sabbath. And then it says at the end of the manna narrative, I want you to gather a portion of this and put it in a Senate, whatever that was, but we call it a vial, let's say a little glass case or a metal case that they may have had. The rabbis think it's a glass case, which was kept in the Holy Ark with the Ten Commandments. And it was a way of saying that B'nai Yisrael are now partners with God in the management of the world. And because it goes into the Holy Ark, which will become the centerpiece for the helmo Aid, which was, of course, the second half of the book of Exodus is going to be about building. What that is about is it's saying that the people of Israel are constructing a microcosm in the midst of the camp, and they are reenacting the great drama of creation by worshiping God and by bringing these sacrifices. And the manna and the way that they rest on Shabbat is also a way that not just the priests, but the entire people of Israel reenact the creation week after week. So it's a cultic partnership between God and Israel. I hope I did Dr. Geller. I don't know if he listens to this podcast, but I I do hope that's the case. And maybe, Simon, if I could just add that when we observe Shabbat today, it also has both of those meanings. There's an element of keeping Shabbat, which is about obedience. Why don't you light a fire on Shabbat? Because I'm not allowed to. No. Why do you read Torah or have these meals? Because I'm commanded to. And it's about demonstrating fidelity to and faithfulness to our commander-in-chief, to God. But Shabbat also has this other element. When we stand up on Friday night and say it for the wine, by Hulu Hashemayim, by the that the heaven and the earth and all the hosts were completed, we are actually saying the words and reenacting, channeling the divine creation. We do it as we look at the Neirot Shabbat, as we look at the candles that are burning, and in a way, we are investing ourselves with this divine light of creation and becoming a channel of divine. Blessing into the world, and so it's not really about obedience. You may need the obedience to get there, but it's then become something about empowerment. And that's the last thing I'll say here: is that many people have said that Shabbat is a day when we desist from creativity, we desist from from power and from control. But in a way, when we don't work and still have food, when we don't have to scramble but we can relax, that is actually a moment when we are most powerful, because we are able to imagine just being without striving, and what would be a more powerful image than that? So in that way, Shabbat binds us to God and gives us a sense um, of divinity in our very lives.
0: So if I'm not mistaken, I I suppose this is how you're presenting both the covenantal and the cultic mode— How maybe do we reconcile them together?
1: I think it's in in Judaism, as in other parts of our culture, there are polarities. A JTS professor, Ismar Shorsh, had a book called Polarities and Balance. And there are tensions that we live between, for instance, between justice and mercy, or between divine transcendence and divine imminence. Is God up in the sky beyond all connection of God very much right here and we have prayers like a donalum which take us across that Continuum from a as a Supernatural God beyond time and space a believe to a God that's right here I put my soul in God's hand God is with me and I'm not afraid taking from Psalm 23 of course but you've got a, a sort of a attention there so I would say that these, Two perspectives in the matter, which may in fact flow from different literary traditions that are embedded in the Bible and the Torah specifically, that these are both showing an aspect of what it means to be in relationship with God. The first element of it is about being respectful and acknowledging God's um, superior power. But the other part of it is being um, respectful in the sense of imitating, copying just children are called upon to to heed what their parents say. I told you you can't have dessert until after dinner. The parent gives an instruction and the child is supposed to obey it. and if the child disobeys it, then there should be some reasonable consequence so the child learns that they shouldn't spoil their appet- appetite on the cookies as tempting as they may be. So there's that element, but no parent wants their children just to be obedient. A parent wants their child, To grow and become independent and to become responsible and creative in their own way, in ways that the parent didn't anticipate. And that's where the real parental pride comes from. But you can't really get there until you start with this sort of conditioning. The rabbis have this idea, Mitoch, Shalolishma, Balishma, that sometimes you do a commandment for the for an ulterior purpose. Go have an aliyah to the Torah, read an aliyah, and I'll give you a donut. All sorts of things that we do to to get the kids or or ourselves to participate. But our hope is always that it will eventually go not from from that ulterior purpose, but we'll become, we'll find ourselves loving the experience. Another way of expressing is Torah miyira and Torah mi ahava, Torah from reverence or even fear to Torah from love. Which is it? Do we? You have to start with Yira. Yira is going to be an important part of taking the enterprise seriously and giving it your attention and and trying to excel and master its qualities. But then eventually, we hope that there will be this emotional, uh, spiritual opening, so that we can feel truly connected to God.
0: Thank you for that wonderful exploration and so many images that you have. Cultivated as well as we've explored B'Shalach today. So, Rabbi Evans, really thank you so much for joining again and all your insights and quotations from some of your teachers, too. It's
1: my pleasure, real honor to be here. And uh, thank you, and Shabbat Shalom.
0: And we very much, of course, look forward to your forthcoming Torah and technology.
1: Thank you. I hope to be able to teach it even in your part of the world before too long. Sounds good. Love to have you back
0: between the lines as well to to discuss that. Mm -hmm. Thank you, everybody, for listening today. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more information about all of our work on our sites, louisjacobs.org and jewishquest.org. Do tune in again next week as we continue our journey through Shemot together and, of course, our quest.